morning and welcome to a Monday edition of the Mary Griffith Show. I'm Scott Hardy, in for Mary. Glad to be along with you. Hopefully you are staying warm. We're going to listen to music for a couple of minutes to let our guests uh, warm up here in just a little bit here. Uh, in studio now, pleasure to meet you. Pilar Brumbaugh, the Executive Director of the Quincy Humane Society. Glad to meet you. Glad to be here. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. Yeah, I did not realize this. You gave me a little bit of information to talk about the Humane Society and the Humane Society has been in this community for quite a while. Yes, we are proud to be one of the um, oldest continually running animal welfare organizations in the United States. We've been around since 1880, um, and when you think about that, that's right here in the heart of town. Uh, so it's pretty neat. That it it really is. <laughs> I mean, I mean, there are so many things that are. Uh, like over a hundred years old, like uh, you know, Napide Manufacturing, the building right across the street from us, the History Museum, Washington mm -hmm. Park, John Wood. But I don't think of the Humane Society, right? And we should. Yeah, we've um, obviously we've restructured over the years. Um, in 1880, while I wasn't around back then, yeah. um, they focused on the um, well-being of the horses. So at the time, horses were used for work purposes, pleasure purposes as well, uh, making sure that they had fresh drinking water, making sure that they were being being treated humanely. Uh, that was the primary purpose. Yeah, it took a while for it to uh, to focus more on like household pets, didn't it? Correct, correct. So in 1939 is when Quincy Humane Society actually began sheltering animals. Um, and that was over at 3100 State Street. Um, it's the house that sits back a little bit um, by those apartment buildings. And so um, not where you would think they would shelter animals. Is it the one kind of like the double the double? Like two story that's kind of down a hill a bit. Um, it's actually it's up a little bit. It's um, okay. You've got let's see, it's it's the Comcast building, then it's um, Country Club Heights, I think, and there's uh -huh. another. Then, then the yeah, trace, it's yeah. right there. It's um, they have the flowers that pop up in the in the yard. Yes, gotcha. yes. <laughs> okay, okay. I was on the wrong side of the street. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. All right. Yeah. But yeah, since 1939, and yes. and even worked with the city. Yep, that's when we started working with the city, and then 1980 is when we officially took on that contract. So um, I think now, probably more than ever, we're seeing it. Um, you may be familiar with the Lost and Found Pets of Adams County Facebook page, um, which is grown in fruition. It's it's amazing um, how quickly an animal can now be reunited with its owner because of the social media page. Um, but back in 1980, they took on, the Humane Society took on taking in lost or found animals. They also took animals um, from families that were unable to care for them and needed to surrender their ownership mm -hmm. to the Humane Society. Um, it was a very big undertaking. You can speak to many of our board members who were still involved with our organization at that time. Um, they've seen the growth from that to where we are today, and um, they've really paved the way to make it possible to be a, a no-kill shelter like we are today. Right. Did they kind of roll their eyes and just like, oh, what a time that was. Oh yes, yes. You know, um, it's not something that we talk about a lot because it is a sensitive subject for some, and even those who did surrender an animal at that time. But, um, you know, in 2002 is when we decided to become a no-kill animal shelter, which meant we don't hold the contract with the city anymore, mm -hmm. which means uh, a lost and found dog 
no longer comes to our facility. Um, they go to the other facility that holds the contract with the city and county. Um, but the animals that come to us, whether that's through an owner surrender or a transport, um, they stay with us until we are able to find them a second chance at love. Right. And Mm -hmm. a a forever home. Um, Or we work with another no kill animal shelter to find, you know, find their way to that second chance. Right. Right. I know. Has it been a year already where or at least six months where you issued a call saying, hey, we're full. We need the community's help. How has that situation been here lately? Um, It's definitely getting better. Uh, We are very close to having 30 adoptions just this month, so it's a great way to kick off um, the new year. Um, I will say it's a a nationwide, um, I don't want to say issue, it's just a nationwide um, problem that we are facing in the animal welfare community that adoptions everywhere are low. Um, And so when we can work with the community, to meet them and their needs to help them so they're able to take in another animal, that means that we can help the community in turn take in animals that they can no longer care for. Um, so it is, it's it's community involvement, and we're working with them, and they're working with us. Yeah, it's been a couple of years. I know that there was a group that was interested in getting the city of Quincy to uh, take part in a, a program to uh, spay. I don't know if they're considered feral mm-hmm. cats throughout the mm-hmm. city, and... I don't think it's gone anywhere. Would that be something that you think that the Humane Society would be in favor of? Sure. So we've actually been very fortunate to partner with Quincy Area Community Cat Coalition. Um, Sally Westerhoff, uh, Lynn Fisher, they took up with this concept of a TNR program, so Trap, Neuter, Release. Um, They do all the trapping. Mm -hmm. Uh, They bring them to us. We spay, neuter. They pick up, and they release right back where it was found. So that program has started... um, We've really seen it pick up in the last year or two. Um, They know they're holding a fundraiser, um, but we support them because they are in alignment with our mission of creating um, not as many unwanted litters, right, uh, in our community. Yeah, and that, of course, can cause so many problems for homeowners and the city and everybody else. So eventually, uh, you know, if you get to everyone... Mm Yeah. The problem eventually, hopefully, will will go away. Yes. But um, it it must be a challenge all the time. I mean, you want people to adopt, but at the same time, you kind of make sure that the type of people that are adopting are the ones that can hold on to the pets and, and don't let them get loose. Correct, correct. So um, we do have an application process um, for our adoptions, and it is thorough. Um, but we are now focusing now more than ever on that match, right? So I might have an active lifestyle and the dog that I see in the kennel, I might be like, that is the dog for me. Well, this dog can be so chill, so laid back. Maybe even you might call lazy, right? More Mm -hmm. of your Netflix and chill kind of dog. Um, That dog's not going to do well in an active environment. Um, We want to make, and vice versa. Um, We want to make sure that for the adopter's sake and for the dog's sake, that this is a match that, by all means, we want it to be forever. We understand that things come up, and that's why when someone adopts from the Humane Society, they have that understanding at the time of adoption that we've made the commitment to the animals that are in our care. It can be 14 years from now, um, and maybe medical expenses are off the wazoo, and, and or lifestyle changes, or even an, a passing of an owner, um, and can no longer care for that animal. We've made that commitment to them. So when an animal is adopted from us, 
by all means, if you can no longer care for it, it does need to come back to us. Yeah, so I mentioned the interview process can be a little more extensive than what folks might be used to. Yes, if in an ideal world, if it could be um, you get a dog and you get two dogs and right. you get another dog, we would love to do that. But then we would be in the cycle of, well, this dog isn't the right fit or this dog isn't working out or we're not working out for the dog. And so why don't we help people um, at the start of it and say, what are you looking for? Tell us more about your lifestyle, um, your personality, what you, what your environment is going to be like, and we will help you find the perfect dog for you. Exactly. Whether it's, like you said, active lifestyle. Kids, I would think, would be yes. a major determinant. Yes. Kids, other pets, uh, dogs and cats. Um, we are able to test dogs um, at the shelter to see if they're good with cats. That's no guarantee since it is in a different environment. Um, right. We have four or five shelter cats in our care that are permanent residents. So that's how they earn their keep, is that they get to meet dogs and see how the dogs <laughs> react to them. All safe, of course, all safe. So. Yeah, and how the and how they react to the dogs yes. as well. Yes. So, yeah. 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 I'm sure they I'm sure all those cats give you a look of like, you're making me do this again. Yes. What do you Some think? of them do not like it. The the one that's the longest standing, um, her name is Aurora. Uh, mm -hmm. If you come into our shelter, she will happily greet you. Um, she is like the the poster child for a, a shelter cat. Um, she doesn't. She has no fear of dogs. Um, even having the little part of her tail nipped at a dog once. Um, wow. She yeah. She has no fear. She's very confident. She's very loving with the children and the guests that come into our facility. Um, so it's. It's the hope that the other shelter cats will learn <laughs> and follow suit. So she's almost a bodega cat. She is, yes. <laughs> yeah. yeah you An 11 year old bodega cat, yes. Yeah, look, if you've never been on oh, the East Coast, they have bodegas and the cats. You'll see it on social media. The cats are just like, deal with me. I'm, yes. I'm part of this. Yes. <laughs> They'll lay on the groceries, whatever. It doesn't matter. It's just like, yep. yeah, you, you got to pet me. I might move. I might yes. not. She so. tests out every dog bed that is donated. She <laughs> likes, likes to sniff the food. Um, and, and this is her, this is her building. We just live, we just work there. I guess we don't live there. We work there. So she is the boss. Exactly. Like I like to say. Exactly. If folks are interested and they want to find out more about adopting mm -hmm. uh, a dog, main, mainly a dog, some cats as well at the, oh, yeah. uh, at the uh, Quincy Humane Society. Been around since 1880, folks. What do they need to do? Go ahead. There's two options. One, you can come in and fill out an application. We have mm -hmm. paper forms, but we also have an iPad. You can sit and sit in the cat room and fill out the application while you're being loved on by a pet. Uh, or you can go to our website, www.quincyhumanesociety.org. And you'll click on the Adopt tab. And under the Adopt tab, there's a dog application and a cat application. So depending on your interest, um, you'll fill that out. It does take a couple of days to process. And once we've done that, our adoption team will get in touch with you. Very good. It's a pleasure to meet you, Pilar Brumbaugh, nice with the uh, Quincy Humane Society. And again, they've been around since 1880. Spread that word. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you. And, and, and bundle up before you get on out. Yeah, <laughs> kidding. Yeah. <laughs> Well, I don't, we may have some saran wrap. I'm not sure. So. <laughs> All right, we're coming up on 930. We'll update you on the uh, commodity markets uh, from the Ursa Farmers Co-op. That's coming up here on WTAD. Thank you so much, Peggy, for that update from the Ursa Farmers Co-op at 934.
It's time now to replay a Best of the Mary Griffith Show featuring author, farmer, former state lawmaker, and winner of the Illinois Electric Cooperative Public Service Award, Chuck Hartke. Hartke talked with Mary about growing up on a hog farm in Effingham, Illinois, and the memoir that he wrote, A Farm Boy's Journey into Politics. Now here's Chuck Hartke in a Best of the Mary Griffith Show. You grew up probably pretty modest on an Effingham hog farm. Uh, I don't know how old a guy you are, but when were your boyhood years? Uh, were they post-World War II, or when were you on that hog farm? Well, I'm not, uh, yeah, after World War II. I was, I was born in 1944, so that makes me uh, 78 years old. So you're one of those boomers. I'm at the very tail end of the boom, and you were the start of the boom as people were coming back from wartime. What was life like growing up on a hog farm? Because, boy, hog farming is so different today. We have these big, huge swine confinements. Uh, what, what was a day in the life of a hog farmer back in, uh, in the uh, late 40s, early 50s, when you were a boy growing up and probably had to do some chores? Well, I had to do a lot of chores, and I explained that in the book. Uh, Miriam was a little different. I, my dad uh, had a huge farm. Uh, we farmed about um, 300 acres, I guess. He owned one of those old threshing machines, and so we always had a lot of hired help. Uh, as a matter of fact, um, uh, my nine siblings and I probably, um, since day one that I can remember, always had a hired hand at the table that stayed overnight with us and and was part of the family. So when we sat down to eat breakfast or uh, dinner or supper, as it was known then, there were 14 of us around the table. Uh, <laughs> siblings, myself, mom and dad, and my grandmother uh, on my mother's side stayed, plus the hired hand. And I have a whole list of hired hands that uh, my mother in her memoir memoirs wrote about and the different events that uh, uh, took place during uh, farming and farming season. And yes, we had chores to do. We had the dairy as well. And one of those jobs that uh, I did was to climb up the huge silo that was 30 foot tall then, and I think 12, maybe 15 foot across. And it took a long time to feed 15 dairy cattle with enough silage in the morning. But uh, no light up in the silo, and so uh, uh, you were hoping there'd be some moonlight or something in the morning. <laughs> so true. Yeah. Then yeah. you you went on after farming, after being a farm boy. What was your chosen occupation then? Well, I was drafted in the military. When I got back, I uh, continued to farm. Uh, like I said, my father had a um, a huge farm, and, and he didn't farm all the land that he had. And so at 19, after graduating from high school, I got married and uh, married my high school sweetheart. And we spent uh, three years together on 80 acres that my father gave to me when I uh, got married, as he did with the rest of his uh, children. And so I was I was born with a uh, silver spoon in my mouth, so to speak. Not often does a man get to... Uh, start doing his occupation as early as he did. But I parlayed that in the next uh, 20 years into a 1,000 acres that I owned myself. So uh, I did well raising hogs, uh, raising corn, soybeans. 
my uh, my wife worked very hard as well until the kids came, uh, Chris and Kim, both adopted, by the way. Um, uh, she worked at the local uh, co-op. So you had uh, you were farming was definitely everything uh, you were all about. How did you get into politics? Well, if you read my book, I was a little frustrated when I got back from Vietnam. There was not a uh, 40-piece band welcoming me at the airport. As a matter of fact, looks of disgust followed me through the airport as they recognized me as one of those killers that were sent to Vietnam. Um, was not a happy camper about that, so I knew it was a political war, and it uh, it soon ended. I got back from the war in nineteen uh, the Vietnam War in nineteen sixty eight, and went back to farming, minded my own business, and uh, I knew that politics was the problem. But at a township meeting, uh, one of the topics of discussion that I attended was the county was going to um, be zoned, and that meant that I would have to go and get a permit to put up a barn or a hog building or a corn crib or whatever I was building on the farm and as I expanded my farming operation. And I didn't want to have anything to do that with that. And I didn't think it was right for agriculture who are uh, self-employed farmers doing their own business out in the country to be regulated by somebody from some city who didn't know uh, anything about agriculture. And so I said, we should we should be involved in this process to make sure that we don't get the short end of the stick. And my neighbors stood up and said, yeah, yeah, that's right, you know. And so they rallied behind and came to my yard, told my neighbors, and says, Chuck, we want you on that zoning board. And so they took it upon themselves to uh, go to the county board members and and uh, suggest that I be uh, chosen as one of those individuals pointed to a planning and zoning uh, board. So I spent 14 months doing that, and then part of that process was to act as um, a spokesperson for uh, the uh, zoning board and present the plan for zoning uh, to every township in the county. And so I did with a recommendation that followed to the county board, do not adopt. And so the political bug uh, fever had caught on. And so um, that happened with it, or happenstance would, it, it so happened that my county board member passed away in a bowling alley, a sudden heart attack. And again, my neighbors came to me and said, Chuck, we want you to take over. Um, Sylvester Saruza's place on the county board. So I was appointed to a 26-month job to finish out his term, and I could not get on the ballot anymore. So, uh, you know, the first election. But uh, I finished out that uh, first term and surprised some of my neighbors uh, that I did not run for re-election, simply because um, my wife, Kathy asked, do you want to be a farmer or do you want to be a politician? Because she knew and I knew that uh, when I was having a finance committee meeting or a transportation committee hearing at, at the county level, that was the day that all my sows decided to have pigs out in the lot rather than being in a pen in a barn. 
Well, let's jump ahead. You became an Illinois lawmaker eventually, and then you were named as Illinois uh, Secretary of Agriculture. Who did you serve under? I served under uh, Governor Blagojevich for uh, five years. That's an interesting. Uh, that's interesting. There's a guy that doesn't know a thing about agriculture. So, uh, and so uh, that that was my demise, though, as well, because uh, he was trying to do things that I didn't think fit in uh, agriculture and was not good for agriculture. And it was my job and my mission to regulate and promote agriculture in Illinois, and this was not going to help a bit. And so I. Um, uh, I hung up on him you know, on a phone call, and that did not make him very happy. Okay. Um, well, I, you know, knowing that I don't know you and I don't know him personally, but considering uh, his record and your record, I guess if I had to take one of you in a fight, Chuck Hartke, I'd, I'd take you. We've only well, got thanks. two minutes left, and so this is interesting because I've always wondered, Illinois Department of Agriculture, I'm going to have you back on again because we've got so much to discuss. You, quickly, in two minutes, give us the travel log of China and Vietnam. You were over there for um, agricultural purposes? Um, I traveled to China uh, as a representative of the state of Illinois, developing goodwill and business connections in China. I went there four or five times and, um, uh, and enjoyed it, took with me six, eight, or ten of my colleagues in the Senate and the House, and uh, we were sponsored by the PPCCP. Uh, and I don't even know what that stands for anymore, but I know they're like the Chamber of Commerce in their various provinces. And so um, it, it, was, it was very interesting. We did promote not only agriculture, uh, but also uh, business opportunities for for everyone. Well, let me ask you this follow-up question. This may be the last one. You've got about a minute left. Um, then how do you take what's happening with China today? Are they a friendly trading partner? Are they an adversary of ours? Where does it stand as far as you're concerned, and what's best for the American farmer when it comes to Chinese relations? In my opinion, this uh, everything that we produce and off the farm um, is dependent upon foreign trade, uh, whether it be lumber, whether it be hogs, live hogs, if it's fruit and vegetables, corn, soybeans are big in our exports, and we need those exports because uh, we're in a world market. And um, I, I don't want to see anything disrupted, but I don't want to be taken advantage of either. And I think that was part of the China uh, embargo. Uh, we were being taken advantage of by the Chinese government. What about now with the situation, real quickly, with uh, Russia and uh, and Putin and Ukraine, and there has been a disruption of uh, food stocks, and, of course, the droughts disrupted food stocks. How important is it to have those free trades and can't control the weather? Uh, you're right. We need world trade, and so does the Ukraine. The Ukraine is... Uh, equivalent to our Champaign County times 10, they have 30% of the world's best soils uh, in the world. Uh, the Ukraine does, uh, equal to that of Champaign County. And so uh, when Putin uh, started his war with Ukraine for various reasons, and I've written a story about that as well, um, he disrupted world trade, and it's going to cause some real problems 
worldwide as far as feeding the world. Okay, we're out of time. Chuck Hartke, thank you so much for your generosity today. Folks, you can get the book, A Farm Boy's Journey into Politics. Uh, go to chuck.hartke at gmail.com if you want to communicate with him. Coming up now, it's 949 here on the Mary Griffith Show on this Monday morning. I'm Scott Hardy, in for Mary. Another segment of the Best of the Mary Griffith Show originally aired in February of 2021. Mark Twain historian Cindy Lovell discovered the actual signature of Samuel Clemens among the hundreds of thousands of signatures that are on the walls of the Mark Twain Cave Complex. Uh, July 26, 2019 discovery was verified a couple of months later. Now, here's Mary and Cindy Lovell. We're back having a discussion with Cindy Lovell. Cindy still teaches a class uh, at Quincy University, although she now has redirected herself to be located in Florida, not Florida, Missouri, Mark Twain's birthplace, but in the state of Florida where it's warm and sunny. And Cindy, we've been talking about your discovery along with Linda Colburn and others, although you were the one that actually spotted it, but it was nice to have other people there to uh, support you and to help mark the place because you don't want to lose that after you look all those years for that, (laughs) July 26, 2019. So obviously... I don't think it's a surprise that his name was on the wall. It would be more surprising if his name wasn't on the wall. But what what exactly is the significance of the autographing on the wall? And why is that so interesting to scholars? And from what I understand, correct me if I'm wrong, you're no longer allowed to write on the walls of the Mark Twain Cave because it's a National Historic Landmark, right? You're right. They changed that in 1972, although uh, I have to say when I took Brad Paisley and his family in there, Linda was gracious and invited them to leave their autographs behind. So those names have been added to the uh, to the cave. But uh, it's it's significant for a lot of reasons. You know, Mark Twain immortalized that cave in his literature, specifically in Tom Sawyer, but also in Huckleberry Finn. If you uh, go back to the very beginning of Huckleberry Finn, he gives a beautiful description of how to get to the room where the boys met, Tom Sawyer's gang. And it's uh, quite a fun description. One night, Linda was up at my house visiting, and we were talking about it. And I said, you know, we should talk about that on the tour because it's a cool part of that book. And we ended up going down and just following Huck's footsteps. In other words, Mark Twain's memory, he recalled how to tell you how to get there. And, of course, we walked right into the spot without any problem at all. So it's it's the signature is significant because everybody did it for years because so many of the so many of the signatures are in smoke. So for years I had it in my head that okay, Sam's would have been in smoke. Now many are in pencil. In fact I, I wouldn't I wouldn't even know how to guess the percentage of, of which one. There are also pokeberry juice and some paint, different ways that people put their names in there, but predominantly smoke and pencil. And I just had it in my head that it would be smoke because how, that's how he described Tom and Becky doing it, was with candle smoke. And I also um, finally hit upon my own theory, and that was, you know, uh, the Clemenses were so poor, and they were very poor, uh, that he wouldn't have had a pocket full of candles, and he might not squander his candle to stand there and, you know, smoke up the cave and write his name. He would be using the candle for light. But, you know, when you think about Sam Clements in that cave, he really knew his way around the cave. He would have been in there with other kids who had candles, so... You know, I just didn't see him having a pocket full of candles to to squander. But um, finding it in pencil, 
suddenly it just changed everything. And to me, the cave has always been sort of sacred soil, but that spot now especially, uh, it's in utter blackness. You always say, how did people miss it? Well, it is in utter blackness. If that, that light hadn't just flashed at that one spot while well, my eyes were happened to be in that one spot, you know, who knows how long it would have been until someone actually did find it. But um, the, to think of him standing there as a boy. Now, this signature is not like very, it's not like a little child wrote it. Remember, he, he lived in Hannibal from the age of 4 to 17. And this is his signature from when he was older. This is toward the end of his time in Hannibal. So even though he went to work after his father died, you know, he was about 12 when he went to work as a typesetter's apprentice, he would still get down in that cave and, and uh, play and explore just like the other kids. And this signature is, is a, it's more mature. It's his more mature signature. Uh, Berkeley, UC Berkeley, the Mark Twain Project has, you know, these on file. And uh, that's what the, the scholars used to um, to verify that it was Sam's and not Orion's or Henry's or someone else's. So they have all their signatures. So it's a more mature, it's more the teenage Sam. So I'm picturing him there toward the end of his time in Hannibal and just happened to be in there. And now who knows, it could be in there more. I'm, I'm not done looking. I, I mean, I always thought, come on, Sam Clemens, we know he had an ego. You know he wrote that his name in there somewhere. I just figured it had been written on top of, you know, there are places where the signatures or upon signatures that it was just scuffed out and or that it was just so well hidden and it was hidden it was hidden by darkness just pure black darkness but the the to picture him standing there as, as this you know young fellow who was not yet mark twain who had not yet made his mark on the world he hadn't gone out he was just the boy from hannibal and uh I, I tell you, it fills me with, with so much emotion to think of him standing there. And I, I've thought about it. Did, did they pull the pencil out of his pocket? Was it behind his ear? You know, I just I can just picture that young redheaded boy putting his name up there because that's just what he would do. And um, I, I love Hannibal. I love learning about young Sam Clemens, um, you know, the, the the adventures that he later immortalized as this great writer, had he not lived there, had he not had those adventures, you know, we wouldn't have those great books. Right. There would we be would... no Hartford Mansion. Right. There might be a, it, there it, might it be a, a Mark Twain, but it certainly would have been a, a different kind. And Mark Twain probably wouldn't have been his name if he hadn't been living on that Mississippi River. We're out of time, Cindy, but yeah. I want to ask to follow up. If people want more information about this, are there journals, are there articles? How can they find out more about your discovery of the Sam Clemens signature inside the Mark Twain cave? Uh, well, it's in lots of press. Uh, it's in the Mark Twain Journal. It's in the Stetson Today. I wrote a piece for them. It's um, uh, it, it, go to the cave. Go to the cave and see it. It's now part of the tour. They've protected it with plexiglass. Go see it and stand in that sacred spot and and imagine that boy. Uh, and and I think of young people. You know, take some inspiration from it and never give up. Never give up looking for what you're looking for. I'll be back. And and while you're all in the cave. Keep an eye out. Look for for Blankenship. Look for Tom Blankenship. This was the boy who um, that it was used as a character model for, for Huckleberry, uh, Huckleberry Finn. Finn. Well, we have so to go, so looking, we'll just tell people looking. to keep looking, keep looking. Cindy Lovell, thank you for your time today. Thank you, Mary.